0: Today's reading will be in Revelation 19, verses 1 through 10, so let's jump into that. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven, shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belongs to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute, who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants, and again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up! forever ever and ever. The twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like the loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our God, Lord Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. At this I fell to his feet to worship him, but he said to me, Do not do it. I'm a fellow servant with you, and with your brothers, who hold it to the testimony of Jesus, worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy.
1: Thanks, Larry. All right, good morning. My name is Larry, and for those of you who don't know me, my name is Larry. I've been here about 12 years, and it is a great honor and privilege to be up here talking to you this morning about this most awesome of books, Revelation. And for some reason, I'm in Matthew. <laughs> okay, there we go. All right. So let's get started. A few weeks ago, a friend of mine took my son and I uh, flying in a private plane. We flew north, and as we flew, I looked out the window and I, I could see a river. And running alongside the river, or alongside the river, I could see glimpses of a highway. And I thought, I, I know that river. I know that road. Um, any of you have been to McCall? also know that road. And I thought, there's a lot to that road. There's campsites along it. There are places where if you turn off just right and go just so far, the best huckleberry picking in the state. But that's all I'm going to tell you about how to find it. I know that road. But we were, I think, at like 5,000 feet. I couldn't see the details. From up that high, I could not see the turnouts. I couldn't see the campgrounds, they were shaded by the trees. At the same time, from 5,000 feet, I could see what was beyond those canyon walls, stuff you can never see from the road. Now, I tell you that because that's what we're going to have to do today. We're going to have to take about 5,000-foot view. There's a lot here, and I know some of you are going to think, but that chapter has so much of this, and that chapter has so much of that, but I'm standing up here now behind this um, plexiglass pulpit to tell you you're right. It's all there, and it is glorious. But we're not going to talk about that because we're at 5,000 feet. So please remain in your seats until the cabin comes to a complete stop. (laughs) Today's passage, chapter 17, chapter 18, and the first 10 verses of chapter 19. Now, this is a passage that speaks very clearly to the first century. But you know what? Sorry, before that, let's just pray. We need to pray. Lord, Father, God, thank you so much for this time, for this place. Father, thank you that we are in a place where we can worship you freely. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks to us now as much as it did to the first century church. Lord, we pray that we would not be seekers to hear about you. We've heard enough about you, Lord. We want to hear from you. Lord, give us the ears to hear, the eyes to see. Give us hearts that are molded to you, Father. Speak to us now, Father, through your word. We pray these things in your son's most holy and saving name. Amen. Okay, thank you. All right, this is a passage that's speaking clearly to the first century. It does have ramifications for the future, indeed for us, but it primarily speaks of the Roman Empire and the way that system was opposed to the way of God. Now, what we need to understand is that when The first century church was reading this. Roman soldiers were marching outside their doors, and they were wondering, are we the next ones to be hauled out of our homes and hauled off to the Colosseum? Are we the next ones to be killed for our faith? When they read this letter, and this letter filled them with hope, they never once thought, I'm willing to bet, they never once thought, oh boy, those 21st century Christians are going to be so glad to get this. I don't think we even entered their mind. This letter was written to them, about them, clearly about what they were experiencing. So we need to understand how it applies to us. It's As uh, Josh said at the very, very beginning, it's apocalyptic in nature, but it's also a letter. Its apocalyptic context helps us to understand some of its symbolism. Now, it is not poetry. Not, not really, as we understand poetry. But John's writing is clearly reminiscent of some of the Old Testament poetry. And like the poetry of the Old Testament, it uses symbolism to paint mental pictures. Lots and lots of symbolism. So if we view all the symbolism in a more poetic light, rather than trying to overly literalize the text, we can get a clearer picture. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. A poet uses words not to explain something and not to describe something but to make something. Poetry is not the language of objective explanation, but the language of imagination. It makes an image of reality in such a way as to invite our participation in it. So the book of Revelation, and especially these two chapters, are a call to resist the ordinary pressures of daily life in an empire. They're not a call to resist that empire, as if we as followers of Christ could take up arms against our government, as if the first century church could have done that it wouldn't have ended well for them, according to Spartacus. The language here, given its apocalyptic and its symbolic nature, gives a tremendous amount of leeway, a tremendous amount of permission to recognize the spirit of this empire in any age. Rome was not the first empire, and it certainly wasn't the last. Now, it's been said that if it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, then it is a duck. When I was younger and was complaining about something, my mother would look at me and say, well, son, if the shoe fits, meaning that if I'm complaining about something, I need to look at how much of my complaint was really about me and my own actions. So I would apply that to today's lesson. Any society that can fit Babylon's robes probably ought to wear the robes of that empire because the text is going to require some very difficult questions about any empire, but difficult questions that we must ask about this particular modern day empire this particular country this united states and our allegiance or lack thereof to that nation however good that nation may be so this is a passage first about god's judgment on rome but then by extension his judgment on all empires now some of the language different depending on the translation you have will discuss a whore a harlot or a prostitute. Now, harlot is not a word that's used very often anymore. Um, it was used primarily in the 19th century, but it went out with hoop skirts and crinolines. The crinoline is a thing on the back, but okay, that's not important. The point is is that we don't use that word in modern vernacular. Uh, whore, uh, we use that a little more modern. That's a little more modern times. You could hear that once in a while, generally referring to a person who um, was very hedonistic, and was constantly seeking personal pleasure. Prostitute, prostitute is the word that um, I'm going to use, and it's a difficult word. It's offensive to me personally, and I feel that it should be. But I want to, uh, I want to make one thing very clear. When I talk about prostitute, last week my family and I were uh, vacationing up in Wallace. The entire town of Wallace has been listed on the National Register of Historic Places. And there are four bui- three buildings, sorry, four buildings, yeah, that two-story brick buildings on the southeast side of town that were the red-light district. One of them has been preserved as the Oasis Room's Bordello Museum. I didn't actually go in the museum. I didn't feel it was necessary to get that intimate of knowledge, but it struck me that there's a museum to this. The reason it struck me is that Wallace was started as a wild and woolly western town, much the way Boise was. Boise had a red light district. The difference is that Wallace's red light district thrived until 1991. How many of us remember what we were doing in 1991? Good grief. It wasn't that long ago. The town had made a compromise with this institution. It was illegal, but it was regulated. It was confined to the southeast side of town so that respectable women and impressionable young men didn't have to walk by these houses. They were required to have medical checkups so that communicable diseases were kept under control. But what really bothers me is, despite the presence of three large churches, the Catholic Church, the Presbyterian Church, and a Lutheran Church, there are more now, and I'm sure there were more then, but these are the three major buildings in the town. This institution, this business, was allowed to not only be, but it was allowed to thrive. And when you read, go through the town reading things, what I was very struck by was the way these women were viewed. They certainly didn't call them prostitutes. They were businesswomen, shrewd businesswomen. They were philanthropists. They were productive and supportive members of society. I'm sorry, they were prostitutes, selling their virtue to the highest bidder. That absolutely floored me. But what bothered me, I shouldn't say what bothered me, but what impacted me to our text was they had photographs of these women. I mean, 1991, color pictures have been around a while. These women were beautiful. They were very beautiful, and they were very smart. These women were not taken off a street somewhere and sold into this lifestyle. These women were not forced into this lifestyle because of crushing economics that that made this the only way for them to earn a living. There's one place where it talks about the number of women that came through on a yearly basis, between 40 and 60. Now, the town didn't support that many at one time. They would come in, they would work, They would earn their, uh, uh, we call it like a nest egg of money, and then they went home, wherever that home was. These were businesswomen who chose this lifestyle. I want to make very clear that when I use prostitute imagery, I'm not talking about victims, because there are victims of human trafficking. That is not who Scripture is referring to. Okay, now that I've laid that groundwork, let's move forward. Now, I think there's four good reasons, at least four that I've identified, that John uses this imagery. Revelation as a book, as a whole, is about God's faithfulness to creation and the Lamb's eventual marriage to a restored world and a restored people. If you really want to wrap your minds around that, get a hold of Josh's fairy tale illustrated by Naomi Kramer. It helped me, it really did, because it took it outside of the context, outside of the apocalyptic context, Secondly, the Old Testament, especially Hosea, uses marital unfaithfulness as a representation of idolatry. Now Babylon has become a source of idolatry. It's become the poster child for idolatry through imperial religion. It was not the first. It certainly wasn't the last. At the time of the letter, it was Rome. So was the worship of Caesar. But all of them promoted a lifestyle that created economic exploitation that left everyone broken everyone damaged. Thirdly, at this time, worship in temples, in local temples, involved prostitution. You went to the temple, and as your act of worship, you engaged with that prostitute. We are called to honor God with our bodies. Fourthly, prostitution lures in people to give them a sense of pleasure, a sense of power at the expense of others. And I would like to point out that is exactly what pornography does. It gives you a sense of, of pleasure, gives you a sense of power. There's no victim. It's just a picture, right? Well, that can't be farther from the truth because behind that picture is a real person. And like politics, these things promise everything and deliver nothing. Empires... An empire seduces the powerful into desiring more power. Power is an amazing drug. And once once you're addicted to it, it's like any other drug. It takes control. At the same time, empires seduce the poor with with promises of security and promises of a better life. But they all get to the same place, when they make their claims that only God can make, and they commit blasphemies when they say that they are God, when they declare, who has the right to live and who does not, because the child would be handicapped, and what kind of a life is that? They have a pleasing appearance. They look good on the outside, but they are full of abominations. They abuse human beings for the sake of economic policies that tend to benefit the rich. And these empires... Invariably use any means necessary to count, to silence counter-imperial voices, even lethal violence. So, let's dive into the text. What do you fear most in life? What do we fear? Is it illness? Maybe being the victim of terrorism or crime? Maybe a natural disaster? I know, I, I know people that their great fear is an economic collapse or political upheaval or some kind of a war, because that would disrupt our lifestyle. That would disrupt the comfortable existence that we have here. Now, all those things can cause physical pain, even death, but I believe that we face, in this room, we face a much more grave threat than any of those things. So, to illustrate that, I'm going to jump back a little bit, and uh, I'm going to jump back to the book of Colossians. In Colossians 4, verse 14, and also in Philemon 24. Paul sends greetings from Demas, whom he calls a fellow worker. Demas was a companion of Paul's, most likely a disciple. I can't imagine hanging out with Paul and not being his disciple. Uh, yeah, so I imagine he was a, uh, he's a disciple. Colossians and Philemon were both written while Paul was under arrest. So we know that Demas had the courage to stay with Paul when the going got tough. That could not have been easy because they... They didn't have Miranda rights. They didn't have, you know, um, uh, what rights? I can't think of the word for it now. They didn't have rights back then, but but Demas stayed with them. Now, we don't know how long Demas had been with Paul before that, but afterwards we know he remained by his side for at least a few years. Some callers think as many as eight. Paul refers to him, however, only one more time, and it's his last letter to Timothy. Paul has extremely sad words to say. Second Timothy Chapter four, verses nine through ten. Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me. I've read that passage before, and I thought, you know, oh naughty Demas. Not a good guy. What kind of friend is that? But when I read it in context of this passage, it uh, it hit quite a bit harder. Because what it says is that Demas loved this world. And after many years of being with Paul, he deserted him. I believe the greatest danger the people sitting in this room face here in this country is loving the things of this world. It's compromising with the world. I believe love of the world is the great warning in this passage. John is shown the attractions of the world in the personage, the person of a prostitute that person being represented by Babylon. Now, we've already been introduced to Babylon in chapter 14, verse 8, when one of the three angels preceding the final judgment declares, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Then again in chapter 16, when God's wrath is completed through the pouring out of the seventh bowl, John again records Babylon's demise. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of his fury of his wrath. Now, here John is going to show us Babylon, the great prostitute. She's attractive and yet repulsive. The angel tells John about her and about her relationship to the first beast that we've already seen. And then finally, in chapter 18, the angel declares her end. So we know that if Demas, who was discipled by Paul, could become ensnared by the attraction of this world, so can you, so can I. So this is where we have to take very seriously Jesus' words when he says, He who has an ear, let him hear. Let him hear. I think a better way to say it in our vernacular, if you can hear this, then you darn well better listen to it. Because this is a warning from God himself to us, to the first first century church, to us, and to every believer who's ever lived in between. So in verse 1, she's called the great prostitute. In verse 2, echoes chapter 14, verse 8, in saying that all men who do not belong to God, those who dwell on earth, are drunk with the wine of her and sexual immorality. Their vision is clouded. They cannot see reality. Like someone who is drunk, and if you've ever seen someone who is drunk, they, they don't see things clearly. They can barely stand up. They, they think that they can actually stop that bus. Bad things happen. And like someone who's drunk, They become overwhelmed with sexual passion. They see her. They enjoy her. And consequently, they do foolish things that lead to their own utter destruction. Verse 3 tells us she's sitting on a beast. Evidently, it seems that this is the first beast from chapter 13, with seven heads and ten horns. Now, this beast is often identified as political power that's used against God's people. So the woman seems to be allied with political power, and yet, Distinct from it. Now, verse 4 tells us she's dressed in purple and scarlet. In Sunday school, we all learned that scarlet dye at that time was uh, procured from certain seashells that grow around the Mediterranean region. Recent science has shown that the red dye used by the Romans is, comes from the scales of a very little insect. The big question has been, is this particular species of insect native to the Mediterranean region, or did it have to be imported? I guess that would make some difference if you're into entomology, which I am not. But what I do find interesting is that they've shown that the red dye comes from an insect, the very same red dye from the very same insect that dyed the uniforms of the British soldiers. There's a reason we call them red coats. from the 18th century through the 20th. British soldiers wore red, and the dye came from the same place as the Roman soldiers. Red and gold were very that that red sorry purple and scarlet were very expensive dyes, which only the rich could own. She's also described as wearing gold and jewels and pearls, she holds a golden cup. She's clearly living in luxury, and promises her suitors that they too can have access to this luxury. So that's a sort of an image that, that is being painted of, of this great prostitute, Babylon. Looking at a literal, at a literal woman, Proverbs 5:3 tells us this: the lips of a wayward woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. The adulteress promises sweet pleasure. She speaks temptingly. She coaxes with comfort. Just like the great prostitute, this woman's rich. This woman is attractive. This woman is available, and many are coming to party with her. I would like to say one thing at this point. It's always presented as the prostitute, here even the wayward woman, the wayward wife, the adulteress. You're not going to have an adulteress without a fornicator or an adulterer. You don't have prostitutes without men going to those prostitutes. And it's easy to criticize her because she's the one getting paid, but he is just as bad. He is just as guilty. Just a personal thing. Proverbs five goes on to warn at the very end. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman, and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. That's Proverbs five twenty and twenty-two. Now for many men Prostitutes are alluring, even though they're repulsive. Like I said, pornography is the same way. Many men, captivated captivated by the sin, they know it's wrong, they hate it, they're repulsed by it, they're disgusted by it, yet they're drawn to it again and again and again. Why is this? It's because it's attractive, because it makes promises. So we know the prostitute in our text is attractive. Is she also disgusting? Well, verse 4 tells us. Her golden cup, so pretty on the outside, is full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. Then verse 5 tells us what is written on her forehead, what defines her, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. She herself is drunk with the blood of the saints. That is her feast. So what is John's reaction on seeing her? Verse 6 tells us that he marvels at her. Marvels. Now, that's the same word that's used in verse 8 and in chapter 13, verse 3, describing the response of God's enemies to the beast. They are attracted to the beast. They want to follow the beast. So John seems to be strangely attracted to this woman. He's disgusted by her. He knows this woman is doomed. Yet her seductive powers are strong, and she is attractive. I think that's why the angel actually rebukes him in verse 7. Why do you marvel? I picture the angels smacking him upside the head. In the end, this woman is attractive. She promises great pleasure, but when seen in truth, she's terribly revolting. Why? Because she's so terribly dangerous to us. What does she stand for? Why does God have John see these images? Why does God impress upon him and upon us the attraction of this woman? Well, to see that, we're going to skip just a little bit ahead and we're going to skip to uh, the last verse of 17 and the first uh, first verse of 18. The woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. That's Revelation 17, verse 18. The great city. Now, where have we heard that? We saw that term used in chapter 16, verse 19. There we saw the contrast between the great city and the holy city. Revelation uh, chapter 11, verse 8 is extremely helpful in defining that woman, that great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Oh, well, that cleans it up, doesn't it? How can something be Sodom, Egypt, and Jerusalem, earthly Jerusalem, all at the same time? Again, let's look at the symbolism and look at the almost poetic nature that that he's speaking in, we need to ask ourselves what is true of Sodom, Egypt, and earthly Jerusalem. Because many times God does this. In the Old Testament, when he said, trust me for your victory, how did he say it? He said, don't rely on Babylon, uh, Egypt. Don't rely on Egypt. Don't go back to Egypt. Were they seriously going to go back? No. But Egypt became symbolic of their relying on other earthly powers rather than relying on God. Here, it's Babylon. So what, does, what do the three cities, Sodom, Egypt, and earthly Jerusalem, have in common? Well, Sodom was unrestrained sexual indulgence. Egypt, many years of, of prosperity, they amassed great wealth. And in the end, their false religion was quite uh, uh, institutionalized. And in the end, when the Egyptians regained the throne, they began to, they began to persecute God's people. Earthly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem of Jesus' day, well, they had false religion. It started good. But by the time of Jesus, they had morphed it into something almost unrecognizable. And they, too, persecuted God's people. Mm -hmm. They went so far as to persecute God himself. So if we combine this picture of what we've already seen in chapters 14, verse 8, 17, verse 2, and 18, verse 3, what we've seen is what makes Babylon. Oh, sorry. There, what we've seen is that Babylon makes those who dwell on the earth drunk with the wine of her sexual morality, and add that to the images we saw of her wealth in chapter 17. She uses this luxurious living as a bait to entice men to her. The merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. So he's painting a, a pretty, pretty clear picture, I think, of who this woman is. How do we summarize what she stands for? Now, in some ways, it seems similar to the beast, uh, second beast of chapter 13, who's later called the false prophet. Now, remember that the first beast seems to work by brute strength, by military might. But the second beast, uh, he entices, persuades, picturing false religion. The great prostitute is similarly enticing. Additionally, the pictures in our text emphasize the appeal of indulgence, of luxurious living, so that we i think we can summarize by saying the prostitute re- represents the appeal of worldly comforts gained through false religion false ideologies economic success now one thing i want to point out i want to make this extremely clear this woman allures us with good things just like a real prostitute attracts men with her sexuality which is a gift from god this woman will allure us with comforts and luxuries of this life. So what can these things be? I wanted to make a list, but I can only make a list for myself. Each person must make their own list. But my list includes this, a quiet home life. Now, any of you come to my house, you will probably be shot in the head with a Nerf gun. And I'll have an 8-year-old who will be running around like his hair is on fire. But beyond that, my house is a quiet place. My wife has transformed it into a haven, a safe harbor from the storms of life. I truly look forward to going home because I'm safe there. It's a cute house, and it's actually visually appealing to me. It's, I like little that, that architecture. Healthy food. I've got a garden, a big garden, fruit trees, chickens. <laughs> I like to eat well. Good medical care. Good grief, we've got two exceptional hospitals. Within. Uh, very very clear, to, close to me, and a job with a boss that I actually like. These are all gifts from God. But if they distract me from God, if they take his place on the throne of my life, if I go so far as to place his crown on them, then I have made them my God. They have become my idols, and I have climbed into bed with the prostitute and made myself a man-whore. Not an expression we hear very often, but it has biblical precedent. We knew that Abraham slept with Hagar because he thought he had to do something to to get this heir. David, Solomon, they had how many wives? I mean, really, how many wives? Forget the concubines. How can you have that many wives? I I don't know. Clearly contrary to God's design. So what I have to ask myself is, am I distracted from following God by his gifts? Do I look at the gift and not the giver? The woman represents all that's attractive in this world. So what then is her relation to the first beast, the one that she's riding? Let's read chapter 17, verse 7 through 15. It's going to detail this relationship for us. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. This sounds like something from The Hobbit, actually. Um, The imagery. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is the one that has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. For as the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth. But it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power. But they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind, and hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. Does that help? Does that clear it up for you? Yeah not so much. It does sound confusing, but let's remember, let's take that in context in in light of what we've seen before. The first beast is an amalgamation of four beasts that were first uh, appeared in a vision recorded in Daniel 7, wonderfully explained by Marianne a couple weeks ago. There's an angel there, an angel interprets the vision for Daniel. The beasts have four empires, four kingdoms. Now, as an amalgamation of all of them, I believe the beast stands for political power. Our passage then tells a complicated story about the horns and the heads. These verses have led to thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of speculation about past and future kings, popes and presidents. And at one point, I could have made a very convincing argument for a certain 12th grade chemistry teacher. Um, But that was, I was young. I was young. (laughs) But let's look at it this way. The angel is underlying what we already know about the beast. This beast has seven heads, and we are told that there are also seven mountains and seven kings. The kings have been around in the past, are present now, and will be there in the future. But their power will come to an end. The beast himself is a king. So if we remember the meaning of the number seven, it's a perfection, completeness. Furthermore, throughout Scripture, head stands for power as two mountains. Mountains unshakable, unmovable, until God speaks. And then it all comes crashing down. So what do we make of verse 16 and 17? The beast and ten kings end up turning on the prostitute. That is, political power turns against false religion and ideologies and promises of economic success. Now that seems counterintuitive to me. How can the beast rule without the bureaucracy? That 's from Star Wars, but that's not important. Can something like that actually happen? I mean this is the twenty fourth century right we 're so much more educated we're more enlightened. Well, it certainly has happened it's happened time and again. I 'm only going to pick a few examples because we only have what a couple hours. The first of the French revolution <laughs> the first of the French Revolution, it began with a very clear ideology, promising liberty, equality, fraternity. There's, there's a French way to say it, but I will not assault your ears with my, with my French. But after a few, very few short years, it degenerated into nothing more than a push for raw political power. And the man who called for the head of the king and queen of France lost his own head to the guillotine. It ate its own, consumed its own. In our own day, it was only last year that Robert Mugabe, president of Zimbabwe, he started with a communist ideology, as so many leaders in in nations like that do. They promise economic prosperity and and relief to oppressed Africans. At the end, he had no ideology. His wife had no ideology. They were clinging to power through military might, through raw force. He no longer tried to persuade anybody that he was good for them. He simply ruled by might. We don't even need to not mention Nazi Germany. It happens, and it will continue to happen. Throughout time, we've seen it, and possibly at the end, this will happen on a much larger scale. Because I believe at that time, the allures of the world, the things that we're tempted with, will no longer be of use to Satan, and they'll be discarded, and he will turn on them. He will use raw political power, oppressive government, and that government will abandon false religions, ideologies, promises of any kind of success, he will try to wipe out the people of God. But what do we know? That the Lamb has already overcome. The battle is won. The victory is sure. So at some point, this great prostitute will be defeated by her own allies. But for most people at that time, whether that time is today or 100 years from now, the great prostitute will stand and she will be tempting us. For those of us in this particular country, I believe it's the, the allures, the attraction of this world. I believe they are a key component of Satan's attack. For those who don't know Christ, these things keep them from him. For those of us who do know Christ, these things can keep us from seeing him clearly. And when that happens, we become ineffective and unproductive. However, God is sovereign. And just like the, Egypt, the Hebrews fleeing Egypt, he was glorified by the Egyptians walking through on dry land. But let us be sure he was glorified by every one of those Egyptians who never quite learned to swim. He will be glorified. This woman is attractive, but she's lethal. She's deadly. How are we to respond? No. What does God's angel tell his people? How does he tell the... Okay. How does the angel instruct God's people to resist this prostitute? Revelation 18, verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. This verse echoes several texts from Jeremiah and Isaiah about the literal Babylon. Come out of her, go, out of her, go out of the midst of her, my people. Let everyone save his life from the fierce anger of the Lord. This voice from heaven is a warning to us. Do not get caught up in her intoxication. Do not see her pleasures as the purpose of your existence. We live in a culture now where we are identified as sexual beings. It wasn't always that way. There are people sitting in this room who lived in a country in the United States where that wasn't the predominant thought. We were intellectual beings. We were spiritual beings. But if you've taken the Conquer series, you know that in the 1940s, there was a man who wrote two books on human sexuality, sexuality of men the sexuality of women, where he reduced us to nothing more than animals, ruled by our sexual desires, our animalistic passions. When his books were read in a, in a certain college classroom, there was a young man who was infuriated by what he was hearing because he said, I've been lied to all my life. This is truth. We are sexual beings, and I will be this man's prophet. I will be this man's greatest voice. And he was. That young man grew up to be Hugh Hefner. I can think of no one who's done more to damage women than to make that sort of filth so available and and even farther acceptable in our culture, in our society. So... It's a pretty big command to come out. Three lessons, three ways to get out. Remind yourself that all worldly pleasures are being destroyed. We are made for bigger things. We are made for a heavenly kingdom. Pleasures of this world are wonderful. And with my 16-year-old son sitting in the front row, I'm going to say it. Sex is great, but it's only this life. That's this life. That's this world. I'm going to be spending a lot more time in the next Every pleasure I have in this world is fleeting. The prostitute's doom is certain. She will be destroyed, along with all those who follow her. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who judges her. uh, Revelation 18.8 As attractive as the prostitute's favor seem, as good as God's gifts really are, they do not endure. They do not last. They will all be destroyed. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is 1 John chapter 2, verse 17. So how do we fight the attraction of the world? We fight it by saying, thank you, Lord, for this gift. Whatever that gift is, a house, a spouse, children, job, whatever. Thank you. But I know they're passing away. You are my greatest pleasure. How do we keep from marveling? After all, we see this every day. The prostitute approaches us every single day. She's brazen. She comes to us, television, radio, magazine ads, billboards. She's everywhere, and she's brazen, and like a lion at the door, she desires to have us. So verse 14 tells us the angel refers to those who follow the Lamb as called out, called and chosen and beautiful. And in verse 8, who marvels at the beast? Who becomes follower of the beast? The dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast. So conversely, who doesn't marvel at the beast? Those whose names have been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. We need to really wrap our minds around what this is saying. If you belong to God, then you are secure in him. He wrote your name in the book of life before the foundation of the world. He called you with an irresistible call. He chose you. He will enable you to remain faithful. As Jesus himself said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So when the allures of this world, when that great prostitute and all her temptations seem so overwhelming, when you don't think it's possible to resist, when your head gets cloudy because of the desires, we need to remind ourselves, I belong to him. He called me. By his power, I can resist. He began a good work in me. He will complete it. And as far as the one who controls the enemy, the one who holds you, who is the one who holds you in his hand, he will protect you. Are we a Demas? Are you a demons? I don't want to be one. I don't want to fall to the allures of the world. I don't want to be content with the joys of this life. And the best way for me to prevent that is by remaining focused on the life to come. Now, at the beginning, I talked a little bit about a friend of mine who took me flying. Many of you have been on that highway, and many of you know it much more than I do. But, you know, I've got stories I know that road intimately. I've had friends who've lost their lives. I've got funny stories about some places. I could tell you the history of the splashdowns at Smith's Ferry. I could describe the beauty of the Rainbow Bridge. But you know, no amount of pontificating, that means talking about it, no amount of my telling you about that road will do more for you than if you actually get on that road. Take that drive. Look at the Rainbow Bridge for yourself. Stop and read about the, the splashdowns. Build your own relationship with that road. Okay, that's what this is talking about. I can stand up here and talk to you about this all I want. And Rod and Jackson, pick your pastor. It doesn't matter. They're good, but nothing replaces getting into the Word yourself. God desires to engage with us, to engage with you. And the best way to do that is to spend time, contemplative time, in his Word and in prayer. So with that, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for, oh, Lord, thank you for getting me through this. Thank you for getting them through this. Lord, speak to us through your word this week. Father, scrub clean the lens of our life. Father, bright, fan brightly the flame of your word in our life, that we would be those bright, shining lights, Lord, in a dark and dying world that so desperately, desperately needs you. Lord, we pray these things in your name and for your glory. Amen.